This is uh, page K31, unit five, part five, respiratory assessment. So um, quite a few of these principles we've already gone over. So this will be a quick uh, review for the most part. So initially we make, uh, we form an impression. And um, I can't stress enough that the time to start uh, observing people, their mannerisms, their facial expressions, their body language is, is now. And um, it's kind of fun sometimes when you're in a social situation to just stand there and intentionally be quiet and just listen and observe um, and rather than speaking and uh, just watch people and try to read their body language and their facial expressions. And uh, it's fun to call them out on their body language, right, or their facial expressions like, you know, you look upset or um, did I say something confusing or, you know. Did I say something wrong? So what's their level of distress? And um, you, you'll get a sense of that from the look on their face, the, you know, the look of anxiety on their face, the, uh, the, uh, the way in which they're breathing, their shoulders are heaving, their nose is flaring, they're using intercostal muscles. Um, you'll get a sense of whether they're sort of right off the bat, mild, moderate, or severe distress. And I'll talk about what that, what that means exactly. It's a very subjective terms, but, um, so for example, when someone's in mild respiratory distress, they're uh, alert, they're able to speak in full sentences. There's no significant uh, intercostal muscle use or accessory muscle use. And um, uh, generally when they're in moderate distress, they're alert, but they're not able to speak in full sentences and we're seeing accessory muscle use. So you'll, um, without actually seeing patients in res respiratory distress, it's hard to uh, sort of imagine what um, it might be like to hear someone who's not able to speak in full sentences. Does any, anyone have a relative who's a, a COPD -er or has a respiratory disease and you've heard them speak in four or five word sentences as opposed to full sentences? No, okay. You'll get a sense of that pretty quickly, but <coughs> uh, in the moderate distress, they're alert, and that's the key. So both of them, they're alert. Moderate distress, I think of people who don't speak in full sentences. But it, again, this is, uh, it is subjective, and uh, uh, one person's moderate may be another person's severe, one person's severe may be another person's moderate. It depends a lot on um, your training and your experience, too. Um, so, uh, and when I say that, I mean, you know, when I work critical care, we, we saw the, the most critically ill and injured patients in the province. So, uh, what a lot of medics would consider severe distress, we would look at and go, no, that's moderate distress to us. But I think um, these are fairly good, broad definitions. Um, and then severe distress would be um, anyone with altered mental status, and that could be uh, you know, some of the early stages of hypoxia, so lack of oxygen, are things like um, restlessness, agitation, um, confusion, uh, fatigue, drowsiness, those sorts of things. And if they're unable to speak more than three to four words between breaths, and they've got an altered level of awareness or level of consciousness, or AMS, altered mental status, sorry, there are so many different terms to describe one thing. <laughs> Um, those patients are in severe distress. Those are the patients who are probably going to require positive pressure ventilation. 
Uh, to get CPAP, they have to be alert enough to follow commands. So if they're falling over and they're not able to follow commands, they're not a candidate for continuous positive air airway pressure. That's why I put all the question marks there. And generally, if there's severe distress, they're going to require PPV. Now, um, asthma, we treat somewhat uniquely uh, in the sense that if you have a patient who's asthmatic and in severe respir respiratory distress, uh, the first thing you do is we give them a high flow oxygen, so non-rebreather mask at a 15 liter flow, and we give them epinephrine uh, intramuscularly because epinephrine is a bronchodilator, and, uh, and then we follow that up with salbutamol or Ventolin. Um, but we don't give epi for COPD ears, asthma only, and um, uh, that usually does a trick. So my general approach is if I've got um, an asthmatic who requires positive pressure ventilation, they're going to get epinephrine, intramuscular. Um, if they don't require PPV, then they're probably not a candidate yet for epinephrine, just salbutamol. Right? And uh, CPAP we only use in COPD ears and CHFers, not asthmatics, just to add to the pile of confusion. Um, so, um, yeah, let's carry on. We'll talk more about uh, CPAP as we go along. So, uh, you know, when we're forming our first impressions, we, we look at sort of what position they're in. This is called a tripod position. Almost everyone who's short of breath will be sitting bolt upright. They may be tripoding. Tripoding just means putting their hands on their, on their knees like that, but not everyone puts their hands on their knees, but they typically sit bolt upright. Um, and uh, are they cyanosed? Now, Cyanosis is uh, a bluish tinge around the lips, sometimes the fingertips uh, when you're lacking oxygen. Uh, but some people are chronically cyanosed, as we talked about before. So COPDers, emphysemics, uh, are classically chronically cyanosed. As I said before, go to McDonald's, go to Swiss Chalet, go to Georgia Mall, hang out, watch the old people. You're going to see people who are cyanosed. Try not to get too excited about it, <laughs> you know, draw everyone's attention to them. Look, look. Um, but they're chronically cyanosed. So, you know, uh, you have to look at uh, cyanosis in context with their, the general impression that you form with those patients. If I encounter uh, someone who's cyanosed, who's in their 70s, and they're speaking in full sentences, and they don't look like they're terribly distressed, I'm going to find out if they're a COPD or if they're an emphysemic. And sometimes COPDers uh, don't know they have chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Um, so what, uh, what question do you think you would ask of those patients to determine that they're likely COPD? -er? Right, do you smoke? Are you a smoker? Um, and if they've been a lifelong smoker, they're probably emphysemic and probably unaware that they're emphysemic. And, um, uh, or they may have smoked, you know, for 30 years and quit, and now they've been 10 years without smoking. So they may tell you they're a non-smoker. So I'm going to ask, have you ever smoked? And how long did you smoke for? And how many packs a day did you smoke? <coughs> um, so are they pale? Are they diaphoretic? And um, when they're pale and diaphoretic, that usually suggests 
they're, they're having a fight or flight response. They've got a sympathetic response where they get, you know, peripheral vasoconstriction, which causes pallor, and they're, they die of rhesus. That's part of the fight or flight response. And a fight or flight response is, you know, an indicator that they're in a fairly high level of distress. Are they purslip breathers? So the patients who are purslip breathers are the gas trappers. So that's the COPDers and asthmatics, right? They have bronchospasm, they have mucus plugging, and they get air that goes in to the deeper airways and they can't get it out. It just goes one way and doesn't come out as easily. So they purslip breathe to try to force that air out. <coughs> now, again, McDonald's, Swiss Chalet, Georgia Mall, you'll see purslip breathers on a regular basis. And uh, uh, some of them are perpetually purslip breathe. Is there accessory muscle use? Is there any pain on inspiration? Um, you know, because when we get a 911 call, these are likely patients who have a chronic condition with an acute event, right? It's an acute on chronic event. So in COPD years, the most common trigger for them to call 911 is they've got a cold and they just can't handle a cold or they've developed pneumonia even worse and they just, uh, uh, it overwhelms their system and they end up calling us. Or they've had a fall and maybe they've broken a rib and uh, it makes it that much more difficult to breathe. So is there any pain on inspiration? And we'll palpate the chest at some point. Uh, is there an audible strider? And what does strider typically represent? So not what it sounds like, but I mean, what <laughs> what's the issue with strider typically? And where's, where's the issue with strider? And that's so block. Yeah, it's airway. Yeah, it's an airway issue as opposed to a lung issue, right? So strider is an airway issue. Just like stertorous respirations is an airway issue. Um, so if they've got audible strider, we think about, you know, a croupy patient most commonly who's striderous or a patient who's got airway burns or something like that. So history presenting illness. Uh, so we want to ask things like if, they're, if, if the complaint is shortness of breath or dyspnea, we want to ask uh, when did this start, how long has it been going on, uh, did it get worse recently, if so, when. Um, most often when you get called for someone who's short of breath, at least in my experience, um, nothing changed dramatically this morning with them. They've just, it's been going on for two, three days and they've just reached the point where they can't take it anymore. It's not getting any better, they can't sleep at night. Um, you know, and they're really struggling. So, so don't look for, you know, uh, a sudden event in the history of presenting illness. It's usually just a, um, uh, something that's been happening over days and it's just reached the break, they've just reached their breaking point. Um, so if, if it's appropriate, what was the time of onset? So for example, uh, if someone's short of breath and they're, you suspect anaphylaxis, um, the onset would be whenever they made contact with um, a probable allergen, like, a, you know, when did they eat whatever they ate, when did they get exposed to whatever they were exposed to, when were, when were they stung, if they were stung, uh, that sort of thing. And have you taken anything, example puffers, um, what did you take specifically? And you'll need to document that because the triage nurse is going to want to know what the patient did to treat themselves before you arrived on scene. And um, uh, did they get any relief from that? And uh, oftentimes the answer will be not much or nothing at all before you arrive. 
and you want to find out if this is similar or different from past events. Uh, and uh, any cough or recent fever, are you taking antibiotics? So have they been recently diagnosed with pneumonia or antibiotics? There's a, there's a meme, I don't know if you've seen it, but you can appreciate it when you're a medic. It's a, the meme is, um, it's a picture of a pharmacist uh, with someone standing on the other side of the counter and the uh, pharmacist is giving this client um, antibiotics and says to the client, take one of these when you get home and if you don't feel better uh, right away, call 911. Ambulance guys love that shit. So <laughs> that's, that's, that's actually pretty classic is people will come home with antibiotics <coughs> and literally a day later they'll call us because they're not feeling better. Uh, but uh, careful not to judge because um, it may not be a case that they're not feeling better. It may be a case that they're actually feeling worse. And uh, you know, I would take that fairly seriously. I have, um, you know, if I ever get pneumonia when I'm older and uh, have to call 911, I have my story all planned out, you know, because I'm not going to take any eye rolling from, you know, 20 year old medics. <coughs> but I might just uh, answer the door with my bags packed. That might be fun, actually, see what kind of reaction I get. So if they've got any sort of chest discomfort, then we do an OPQRST. And have you guys been practicing OPQRSTs in the lab at all? Yeah, okay, good, awesome. Um, if they have a cough, we want to find out is it productive. Productive meaning are they coughing up something? <coughs> like when someone has that crackly chest when they cough and it sounds like phlegm coming up, that's a productive cough. Now, if you're lucky, maybe um, they've seen it. Uh, frankly, I think it's gross when people cough outside and they spit. Uh, that just makes me want to barf, but um, uh, well, I just swallow it. My oh, no. the rest of my body will take care of it. No, <laughs> no, she says. Well, when you swallow it, though, the stomach contents <laughs> kill that stuff. So it's all, it's all good. Okay, but I draw the line. I okay, but I draw the line. Now, if you're talking blowing your nose, that's fine. But uh, spitting that stuff is gross. Uh, but I draw the line at people who like plug one side of the nose oh. and <laughs> blow stuff out the other side. <laughs> yeah, well, see how you feel about people coughing up their phlegm and spitting it out when you're working as a medic and they spit it out like it splashes next to your boot. <laughs> Yeah, and it's green and it's stinky, you know. Imagine a world covered in people's productive phlegm. Like, think about that. Seriously, right? All right. So, <laughs> if they've been coughing it up, we want to get a sense of it, it, if it smells. It's we're we're likely looking at something like a pneumonia. It's, it's not diagnostic of pneumonia, but we're probably looking at an infectious process going on in the lungs, right? Um, 
Uh, the other thing that I didn't mention there is, is there blood? Right? And blood, um, the, the term for that coughing up blood is hemoptysis. Hemoptysis. Uh, and I can't remember how to spell it for sure, but it's I think there. it's H-E, is it there? It's still there, yeah. I'm going. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah so uh, there we go, hemoptysis. Uh, is there nausea, vomiting? That's what N slash V is. What's the consistency, frequency, color? And when it comes to vomiting, if they vomited three times or more within a 24-hour period, that's sort of a uh, significant finding because three or more times uh, suggest they may be dehydrated. Now, when you go out drinking heavily, which I know you do every weekend, and you barf three times, it's nothing for you because you're healthy enough to drink water or whatever, drink, hopefully drink something with a little bit of salt in it, um, and you're probably fine. Um, but a patient who's uh, older or very young and may not have that ability to replenish three times, uh, vomiting three times, um, is sort of the early onset, uh, maybe a signal of early onset dehydration. So is there hemoptysis? And um, hemoptysis, uh, the differential diagnosis for hemoptysis would include pneumonia, would include tuberculosis, um, would include uh, lung cancer, as an example. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, oftentimes what we do is when we when we vomit or we sweat excessively, we're losing water and salt. And when you're just drinking water, uh, you're diluting what little salt or what salt content is already in the body, and that can cause a low serum sodium level. It becomes an issue with excessive vomiting or excessive diarrhea. Um, there comes a point where you know my general rule is if you've if you've had three large glasses of water, it's time to move on to, you know, add something like ginger ale or something with a little bit of salt content to it, <coughs> or Gatorade or something like that. Um, so we want to find out about past medical history, meds, and allergies, and risk factors. So most often, uh, uh, you're going to find patients don't, know, don't really know their medical history unless they just have one condition. If they're asthmatic, they usually know they're asthmatic. But but in a lot of elderly patients in particular, they're, they're not knowledgeable about their medical history. Either they just don't remember or they just don't really care or they just, they take meds and they assume they're fine. Uh, and that's okay. Uh, but your role, part of your job, is to learn the garden variety medications. You're probably gonna need to learn a good 200 to 250 um, prescription drugs. Uh, and get to know those well enough that when you see them, you can recognize them. Now, the puffers are fairly easy. You know, there's, uh, there's only like a maybe 10 or so different types of puffers uh, for different conditions. Pulmocort, for example, uh, patients who are on Pulmocort are usually COPDers, uh, people on Advair as well. So there's Ventolin, there's usually a combination of Ventolin and steroids like Atrovent. Um, what's that? Uh, humulin is insulin. Oh, actually, my brother's ventolin and my brother's asthma thing is humulin. And he's not diabetic? Oh, I'd have to see that. Okay, cool. Yeah, I've heard of that. Um, so, uh, Advair is what they call a leukotriene receptor antagonist. Um, Advair, uh, so leukotriene is one of the mediators of inflammation. So, uh, 
people are usually put on a combination of a bronchodilator and a steroid, which the steroid addresses the inflammatory process in asthma. Um, so we want to find out if they're asthmatic or if they're emphysemic, they have bronchitis, they have pneumonia. Uh, and risk factors would include things like smokers, exposure to some sort of substance recently. Um, and as a general rule, if they're on three or more medications for their lungs, they're a high risk patient. In other words, they're a higher risk of deteriorating, a higher risk of requiring uh, hospital admission, a higher risk of ICU admission. So three or more drugs, uh, respiratory drugs. Do they have allergies, uh, for example, to, to medication, to food, environmental, uh, because maybe their exacerbation um, or their condition is the direct result of an allergic reaction. And um, when it comes to physical exam, uh, the first thing we do is we inspect <coughs> and then we auscultate and palpate when it comes to the chest. Um, when it comes to the abdomen, we just skip the auscultate. We don't auscultate the abdomen, it's just not an appropriate uh, assessment in the pre-hospital setting because it's, it, uh, it can take 20 to 30 minutes to do a proper auscultation of the abdomen and we just don't have that kind of luxury of time in the pre-hospital setting. But the chest, we inspect first. So what do you think it is we're looking for on the chest? Yeah, Eli? Sure, any obvious signs of trauma? Someone else? Rashes. Rashes, okay, good. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, anything else? Barrel chest. Yeah, barrel chest. So if they're a COPD or they may have a barrel chest because of gas trapping, so they have a chest that sort of sticks out a little bit. Anybody else? Yeah, use of accessory muscles, good. Anything else? Yeah. Sucking in. Yeah, sucking in. So any um, accessory muscle use of supraclavicular indrawing, or if, you, if you're dealing with a child, you know, seesaw movements. Someone said subcutaneous emphysema. Was that, Heather? Yeah, so subcutaneous emphysema. That would, be, that would be palpation, right? You can't uh, determine that on inspection but that would be palpation, yeah. So we auscultate and then we palpate. What's the purpose of palpating someone who's short of breath? What's the purpose of palpating the chest? Yeah, it's just sort of to rule out trauma, to rule out uh, injury is the reason, right? Now, it's not always trauma, but it might be, um, you know, costochondrial um, inflammation, which is where the ribs meet the sternum and there may be an inflammatory process going on <coughs> there and that may be making it difficult for them to breathe. Um, when it comes to um, uh, auscultation, the posterior chest is where we want to auscultate. Ideally, we want to get skin contact. Now, if they've just got a single layer of clothing, that's probably fine. But if they've got a, a sweatshirt on, uh, that's too thick, right? So. You don't necessarily, if they don't have anything underneath their sweatshirt, um, you should be able to still discreetly and maintaining their privacy and their dignity um, and ask their permission first, obviously, to get your stethoscope underneath the back of their shirt to auscultate their chest. Right? But a single layer of clothing should be fine. Just, just know that um, the stethoscope on the fabric may produce its own sort of artifact and noise and that may be uh, a bit of a hindrance. Um, so inspection of the chest, um, we're looking for the usual stuff, as you mentioned, um, 
scars as well, right? And if they've got a scar, you want to ask what that's from. What's you know, sort of surgery is that from? They got a big scar down their sternum. Did they have uh, coronary artery bypass grafting? And if they had uh, cabbage, that's what we call it, coronary artery bypass grafting. How many vessels was it? Uh, was it uh, uh, you know double bypass, a triple bypass, a quadruple bypass? Sorry, what was cabbage again? Coronary. Um, coronary artery bypass grafting. Now, patients don't know the term cabbage. So, uh, if you ask them if they, you know, I see you got a scar there, did you have cabbage? It's like, no, I had Fruit Loops. Does, this, does that matter? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, we gotta be careful of the terminology we use around the patients, right? Um, is there symmetry or asymmetry? So when you're looking at the chest expanding, is it, is it expanding symmetrically or is it asymmetrical? And well, what would asymmetrical chest wall expansion suggest to you? Like one size expanding, yeah. So maybe flail chest. You guys have already talked about flail chest in, in lab? Okay. Um, what else? Pneumothorax. Yeah, pneumothorax or collapsed lung, yeah. So uh, or flail, or sorry, um, asymmetry could be just from rib injury. So if you've got, uh, you know, in, an injured chest on one side without uh, a pneumothorax or without a flail segment, um, you might just be having a lot of pain and people guard, right? They tend to breathe on the other side less than this one. That might seem odd, you know, how do you do that? How do you breathe more into your left lung than your right? But it's remarkable how people are able to do that, you know, because of the pain. <coughs> we'll talk about flail segments later. Um, are they barrel chested? So COPDs are typically barrel chested. Um, I would say at least at least 75 to 90 percent of the patients I've encountered who are emphysemic, i.e. COPDers, uh, were completely unaware they were COPD or emphysema. Um, emphysema being one component of, of COPD. Uh, but they've got, you know, a barrel chest, uh, they've got purslip breathing, they're chronically cyanosed, they're chronically desaturated, they've got a long history of smoking. Uh, you just know, right, from the history. Now, I'm not going to say to them, ta-da, you're a COPD -er, mister. <laughs> no one's ever told you before, but you're a COPD -er. You're on Polocort, you're on Ventolin, you're on steroids, you have a barrel chest, cyanosis, purslip breathing, therefore, you are a COPD -er. Uh I'm not going to do that, but, but I know, and my partner knows, uh, and that's all that matters, and we're just going to treat the patient the way they need to be treated. So we're also looking at their respiratory rate, their volume, their pattern. Now, um, you know, when it comes to describing respiratory patterns, uh, you know that you're expected to uh, document rate, um, rate, volume, and pattern, you know, regular, full, or, or uh, you know, 16 full and regular, but respiratory patterns are almost never irregular. So uh, you're going to be documenting regular on 99.9% .9 of your patients for their respirations. Uh, why we even document that, I honestly don't know. It seems to be a pre-hospital obsession in the hospital that they could give a rat's ass. Um, 
but the only time you're going to see an irregular respiratory pattern is typically in a patient who's had a stroke or a head injury. And they may have some odd res respiratory patterns like chain Stokes respirations. Uh, chain Stokes is where they, they have a crescendo, decrescendo breathing and followed by apneic periods. So they, they breathe shallow and then they get deeper, then they get deeper, then they get shallow, then they go apneic, and then they go shallow, deeper, deeper, apneic. Um, so they have that sort of a pattern. And we'll see that in strokes and head injuries sometimes, as I said. Um, so inspect the chest. So this is a, a, uh, someone involved in a motor vehicle collision, as you might assume. Why, why would I assume they're involved in a MVC? The seatbelt, seat yeah, seatbelt marks. Now, how long do you, do you think it takes for a seatbelt mark like that to appear? <laughs> Usually half an hour to an hour before you see that kind of a pattern. Um, so this is important. If you do see it instantly, which is a rare occurrence, but if you have someone in MVC and they say, you know, I'm fine, I don't need to go to the hospital, but uh, they let you look at their chest and you see that kind of marking right away, that's a patient who's probably had a significant acceleration deceleration event, so they're probably traveling at a good clip and come to a sudden stop. That's the patient who needs to go to the hospital just to be assessed, right, to rule out any internal injuries. People are often aware of their injuries. I had a lady who, um, she was, uh, uh, now pregnant patients often call us if they're involved in an MVC, uh, and rightly so, just because they're concerned for their baby. And so uh, I had a lady who's 24 weeks gestation. She was involved in an MVC. Uh, her husband crashed the car. And um, uh, she had no injuries uh, per se and no complaints. She just wanted to be assessed. And that's fine. We go there and we do an assessment. But my assessment of a pregnant woman is usually, okay, let's go to the hospital. And they're usually surprised to hear that. But, you know, we'll go to the hospital. That'll give me peace of mind. That'll give you peace of mind. And we'll make sure the baby's okay, right? Because when you have acceleration, deceleration forces, especially women in the third trimester, the weight of the uterus, a, what they call a gravid uterus or pregnant uterus, can, you know, when it goes forward and goes back, even at slow speeds like 70 kilometers an hour, can cause tearing of mesenteric vessels. So I don't take any chances. Now, don't think that every pregnant woman's gonna bleed when they're involved in a crash, but it does happen. So I take extra precautions. But this lady, she was 24 weeks gestation. <coughs> On exam, she was, uh, had no complaints. I palpated her, her head, her neck, her chest, her belly, her pelvis, her extremities. And uh, en route to the hospital, she said, my sternum feels a little tender now. And I said, okay. Anyway, she had a sternal fracture, which is pretty significant. It's not easy to fracture your sternum, but she had a sternal fracture. And um, anyway, they took her to uh, a hospital where they could do a, a, a more thorough assessment of her from an obstetrical perspective. And uh, she was fine, but uh, you know, it, it wasn't the kind of injury I anticipated. It was, you know, I was being cautious by taking her to the hospital, but she was relieved she went, and I was relieved I took her uh, because I'd hate to be, you know, uh, the victim of a lawsuit where someone comes back and says, the medics told me I was fine, and then I had a sternal fracture, and, you know, it led to the following problems, uh, right? So, um, so uh, seatbelt injury, um, 
when we auscultate the chest, we always auscultate apex to bases. So apex to the top of the lungs, bases down below, and uh, posterior thorax is the ideal place. Uh, this is typically where I auscultate in, in that order. Uh, and um, so we're going down the, the, the borders of the vertebral column until we get to uh, about the base of the scapula and then we spread out a little bit to the bases. Now, <coughs> just know that um, if you auscultate too low on the right side, you may hear diminished or absent errantry compared to the left and that's because the liver uh, raises the hemidiaphragm on the right side. So. Um, if, if you're not hearing any errantry down at the base on the right side, you probably auscultated too low. That's all it means. Now, if they've got no errantry in the right base and they're short of breath, then you, we might be dealing with a collapsed lung. But generally speaking, it's usually just the liver that's there. Uh, anteriorly, so um, we'll auscultate, auscultate, God, I can't speak today. We'll auscultate just below the clavicle on either side. Um, typically at about the fourth intercostal space, right and left sternal borders. Uh, and then I like to go um, out to the high mid-axillary, so mid-axillary, mid-armpit, high mid-axillary, uh, and then low mid-axillary on either side. That's a good, reasonably thorough um, auscultation of the chest. Now, <coughs> when you're listening here, um, you might as well be listening for heart sounds as well listening to see if you hear clear lub-dub. But um, this area here is also where the trachea bifurcates into the right main stem bronchus. <coughs> and pneumonia is often, uh, they call it the hyalur region. And pneumonias often begin in the perihyalur region in, in patients. Not always, some pneumonias begin in other places. But um, sometimes you'll hear some crackles or evidence of pneumonia in the perihyalur region. So it's uh, one of the reasons we auscultate in that area. Uh, so what are we interested in? We're interested in uh, is there air entry and is the air entry equal? That's number one, right? And uh, do we hear uh, uh, air entry from apices to bases? Um, <coughs> can you auscultate from above the clavicles? Yep, you can auscultate above the clavicles. You can actually hear air entry above the clav clavicles. Some people do, I never do, but you can auscultate air entry above the clavicles. Um, is the chest clear uh, or do we hear any adventitious <coughs> lung sounds? Have you heard this term, adventitious lung sounds? Adventitious means abnormal lung sounds. Um, give me some examples of adventitious lung sounds. Wheezing is one, yeah. Crackles, good. And what's crackles? What makes crackles? Yeah, liquid, right. Yeah, so liquid, good. Um, so. Crackles, wheezes, probably the two most common. Diminished or absent, you know. Um, the other one is bronchovesicular. Um, let me spell it for you. It's probably on a slide there somewhere. Jeez, every single piece of chalk up here is like this size. That's amazing. Like, like teachers have been working themselves to the fingertips. So. I think that's how you spell bronchovesicular. So broncho bronchovesicular are loud sounds, and uh, they're not unlike the sounds you would hear if you auscultated the trachea. If you put your stethoscope in the trachea, you'd hear a very loud sound. 
but you might also see here rather bronchovesicular sounds over areas of consolidation like pneumonia um, or uh, cancer tumors so when you're auscultating the chest um, it usually is pretty loud up here and gets quieter as you go down and if it's sort of you know relatively quiet 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 and then suddenly very loud in one spot that's probably a bronchovesicular sound and that means you've either got like a pneumonia there an area, area consolidation like pus or you've got a, a tumor or something there um, cancer patients are the ones I hear bronchovesicular sounds on most most often and it's just um, is it important? Uh, not terribly. It's, it's just kind of an interesting finding more than anything else. So crackles, wheezes, uh, ronchi. Um, someone look up ronchi because I'd rather give you uh, uh, a Google definition of ronchi than, than my own. Uh, it's a term I rarely, if ever, use. usually just type in define ronchi. That'll give you a brief synopsis. What'd you find, Heather? It just sends abnormal sounds from the line Yeah, that's not helpful. <laughs> yeah, what'd you find, Charlie? Uh, that says ronchi are continuous low-pitched rattling lung sounds that often resemble snoring. Okay. Uh, snoring. Snoring, that's what you found? That's what I heard. Low pitch. Yeah, low pitch. <laughs> <laughs> because he was quiet. Is that why? Yeah. Low pitch rumbling sounds resembling snoring. Anyone find anything different? It's a good, uh, when you're auscultating a COPD ear's chest, that's what you often hear is ronchi. It's, it's hard to describe it. It's, it is just kind of a low pitch rumbling sound. And in COPD ears, when you auscultate the chest, it's, it sounds, and I don't know how you can describe it, but it sounds like they're taking a breath in and there's kind of a crunch sound and it, like the air can't go any further. It's just like a and nothing more, right? Uh, but you have to auscultate those chests to uh, really get an understanding. So crackles would be like a clicking or popping, bubbling sound, rattling sound. Have you guys had the chance to um, listen to chest Adventitious lung sounds. I think Dwayne might have given you a link to yeah. abnormal lung sounds. How many of you have had a chance to have a listen to those lung sounds? Okay, so the rest of you haven't. Make sure you have a listen to those and uh, uh, to try to get a sense. Um, now, crackles used to be called RALS, so you'll sometimes hear that term. It's an outdated term, but RALS is another term that describes fluid in the lungs. And um, uh, may be heard on inspiration only if the crackles are fine. So crackles are usually defined as, as uh, fine, moderate, or coarse crackles. Um, when you've got someone with coarse crackles, it's almost always a patient with congestive heart failure who's got diffuse pulmonary edema from their heart failure. And you'll hear a loud crackling, rumbling, bubbling sound uh, from apices to bases. Now, with CHFers, with congestive heart failure patients, um, pulmonary edema happens in the dependent areas, right? So, so you may hear fine crackles bilaterally in the bases initially, and then you know you start to hear it higher up, might be base, you know, mid-chest to bases, and if you're hearing it from apices to bases, that's a patient who's in pretty rough shape, right? 
Um, so is it unilateral or is it bilateral? And this is important because CHFers, congestive heart failure patients, present with bilateral crackles, fine, moderate, or coarse. Um, if you auscultate the chest and you hear crackles only in one side, you're probably not dealing with a CHF, you're probably dealing with something like a pneumonia, because pneumonia can give you crackles as well. Or some sort of inflammatory process uh, that's going on uh, that would give you unilateral. Uh, wheezes, so um, in asthma, there's uh, a combination of inflammation, bronchospasm, and hyperreactivity of the lungs. And uh, so there's, uh, bronchioles are, are narrowed because of inflammation, they're bronchospastic, uh, wheezes is sort of musical sounds uh, in the lungs. And so normally in the air passages, you'd have laminar airflow. But if you've got bronchospasm, you're going to have turbulent airflow, and that's what creates those mu musical sounds. <coughs> right. um, so ronchi, low pitch, rattling, wheezing, snoring-like sounds in the lungs. Uh, I, honestly, I don't know how you can confuse it with stertorous respirations because stertorous respirations is a clear, you know, we all know what snoring sounds like. And when someone has a partially obstructed airway because of a diminished level of consciousness, they have a snoring uh, sound, which is clearly an airway partial obstruction rather than a, a lung sound. And uh, so it may be due to congestion and mucus and larger bronchioles, uh, often heard and COPD ears. Bronchovesicular, as I said, is a loud or moderately loud sound heard over an area of consolidation like pneumonia or cancer. And uh, heart sounds, uh, so we're listening to the presence, the volume, any abnormalities, fourth intercostal space, left sternal border, fifth intercostal space, left midclavicular line here. Uh, my advice to you, and there are very, very few paramedics who listen to heart sounds, which is a real shame, uh, but my advice to you is anyone who has shortness of breath or chest pain, have a listen to their chest, have a listen to their heart sounds. Um, I think we had a, I think it was a second year student yesterday who came up to me and said she heard a, a murmur uh, in the hospital. And what I would do, I would create a treasure hunt list for yourself. Don't call it a treasure hunt though, because uh, I don't think the nurses would be very impressed. But um, for your clinical experience, uh, and you'll be starting clinical next semester, right? Um, so for your clinical experience, what I would recommend is getting a small little notebook and keeping notes in there so you can just keep it in your pocket uh, or an iPad or, or your phone if you keep notes in your phone. Uh, but in that phone, iPad, notebook, whatever it is you use, as we go along in here, I would make a list of things you want to see, hear, or feel when you're in the hospital. You don't need to tell anyone about your perverted little list, uh, but keep a list because um, this might be your, one of your few opportunities to discover these things. You know, when I say feel, I mean things like pitting edema or subcutaneous emphysema, you know, or uh, a boggy head where there's a head injury and you've actually got, um, you know, depressed skull fracture, you've got bony bits that are, you know, or bony crepitus, uh, things like that. Make a list uh, and uh, you'll be grateful in the end. So, 
Uh, okay, little quiz. Oh, no quiz. Disregard. I really got to get rid of that slide. Any questions about respiratory assessment? <coughs>